This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You're listening to the Impact Theory Podcast, your source of empowering ideas and actionable techniques from the world's highest achievers. Join host Tom Bilyeu, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of the billion-dollar brand Quest Nutrition, on a journey to unlock your potential and realize your vision of success. Welcome to Impact Theory. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of After Impact. I am your host, Tom Bilyeu, and I am here with the lovely and talented wow. Agent Smith. Mr. Bilyeu. What's How up, my man? I'm doing very well, thank you. Yeah. I'm excited for today's episode. Yeah, me too. Um, Mr. Quick has become, of all the people I've interviewed, I think he is the person that I've become the closest with, which yeah. is pretty awesome. He's a good dude. He's a friend of the family here in Impact Indeed he is. So it was fun to have him on. Cool. Well, welcome everyone. This is After Impact. Uh, we are pre-recording this episode because Tom is about to go out of town for a couple of weeks to yeah, Europe. Yeah, which is crazy. Yeah. So apologize that you can't be on Facebook Live uh, interacting with us and sending us your questions, but we'll be live again very shortly. So please do check in every Wednesday, 10 a.m. Pacific time. We're doing After Impact. This is a show where Tom and I go deep into the episode of Impact Theory that just launched, and today is Jim Quick. Jim Quick. Jim Quick, this man right here. Quick learning. Yep. So if you don't know Jim Quick, he is a memory and learning expert. Um, he has for many decades been a coach, a brain coach for brands, CEOs, athletes, uh, celebrities. He's worked with a lot of stars and celebrities yeah, for movies of, of memorizing lines, I'm assuming. Mm. Um, and he is just, uh, he's, a, he's a beast at, at this particular technique and training your brain to understand concepts better. He uh, has a podcast called Quick Brain Podcast, which just launched recently, and that's out, so go check that out. But he's a great guy. He was originally on Inside Quest uh, way back in the day, yes. and now we have him here on Impact Theory. And uh, it's his story is interesting because the reason he developed all these skills and techniques for understanding how to learn faster and learn better is because he himself struggled growing up because he had a um, brain injury as a child. And uh, I want to jump into that to kick things off here. So he describes in this episode how everything when he was young was a struggle mm. all, all of his life. And he was labeled the boy with the broken brain. Um, he didn't want to get up in front of class ever because he was terrified of not being able to remember things or present right. well. Um, but he says that the thing that got him through all of that was that his parents gave him purpose and that there's a reason he's going through all this suffering. They said that the struggles become the strengths. 
I found that to be a very powerful part of the episode. Yeah. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, that obviously served Jim very well. Um, and I think that I don't believe things happen for a reason, but I believe that you can extract meaning from anything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when something like this happens to shift your mindset away from focusing on all the ways in which it sucks and it's bad and think about all the ways in which it can be useful. Yeah. And I mean, very much a powerful example of the obstacle is the way, right? So if Jim hadn't had the accident, if he hadn't had a traumatic brain injury as a kid, if he hadn't been um, literally learning disabled and had to find a way somehow to catch up, he never would have developed the techniques that have literally become his mission in life is to teach other people to do that. And whether you're normal and trying to get better, whether you're better and trying to be great, or whether you're really starting at a deficit and trying to work your way all the way from deficit to greatness, um, he's able to help people with that and, and would not have been able to do that had he not chosen to really turn um, the, you know, what to most people would just be this huge detriment into something that's really powerful for him. So I think, and they've done incredible studies on this. If you take somebody and they become paralyzed, you take somebody and they have a traumatic brain injury, you take somebody and they have significant loss in their life, um, when it happens immediately, they're going to say, this is horrible, it's the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And then at about a year, people get to the point where they're saying, this is actually the best thing that's ever happened to me. And they, there is um, just a cognitive algorithm at work that's going to find a way to rebalance you, recalibrate you, and get you to the point where you can see the extraordinary positive and what's ever happened to you. And I love that about the human mind. I love that we do that, that we all get back to a baseline of happiness. Um, and what's really interesting is that baseline of happiness goes both ways. So whether it's you know traumatic brain injury or it's winning the lottery or whatever, you're gonna go back to neutral, right? So um, the body fights for homeostasis. It fights to get back to neutral. So you're never gonna be too happy for too long. You're never gonna be too sad for too long. And Jim is living proof of one of the ways that that expresses itself where now his whole life is built around um, that thing that happened to him, but him flipping it. Yeah. And so bringing this down to a micro level in sort of the day-to-day -day sense. So mm -hmm. everyone has days where things just aren't going well. You have a bad day, right? Um, how do you use that as a trigger to shift your mind into thinking about how can this be the best day or how can I extract value out of this? Yeah. I mean, it really is techniques and it is arming yourself with like literally asking and answering that question for yourself. So mm -hmm. what do I do on bad days? How do I protect myself against that? Um, it, so I'll answer it from a little uh, trauma perspective where it's okay. like, it's just a bad day first. And then we can talk about like how to really deal with the hard stuff. Um, but if it's a bad day, it's, it's such an easy fix, which is stop and focus on three things that you're grateful for, mm -hmm. right? Gratitude is so powerful. Yeah. And it really, like your mind can't be in two places at once. So if you're focusing on gratitude, you're going to start to feel that from a neurochemical standpoint. Also changing your posture. You'll find if you're having a bad day, you're just more and more likely to do things like this. You're yeah. sort of coming in on yourself. So when you feel it, like do this, um, smile. Like it is so weird. Like when you feel the like little muscles in your face engaging in a smile, you feel better. And if it's true that that all comes from your neurons and our ability to understand somebody, create theory of mind has to do with actually mimicking, like people talk about um, mirroring and matching and posture. And so if someone has their arms folded, you'll notice the person they're talking to will fold their arms. If they don't, they won't. If they lean against something, they'll lean against something. I mean, it's really interesting. And then we do all this stuff, including mimicking their facial expressions um, to really feel, to actually feel 
what they're feeling. Mm -hmm. And so we've, it's created this feedback loop of physicality. So um, a minor bad day, using your physicality to really pull yourself out of that, to smile more, to stand in a better posture, um, just to put yourself mentally onto the things that you're grateful for, um, to put on a comedy and watch a funny movie. Like all the like yeah. really simple stuff um, actually can have a profound effect. And one of Lisa and I's favorite stories with each other was uh, we were living in London at the time and just had an absolutely horrific day. And I think we'd gotten into a really big argument. And so we went, we decided to go see a movie and it happened to be Rush Hour 2 and thought, okay, see a funny movie. And by the end of it, we found that movie so hilarious. And it took us from like really being in just bad moods to being elated. And it was so funny that to this day, that's like as a couple, certainly one of our favorite films ever, um, just because it was so cool to go through that cathartic transition. If it's a big thing and it's like a really traumatic event, um, that's when you really have to have bigger tools at your disposal. And I, the one that I found that's the most powerful is how is this the best thing that's ever happened to me? And I find that that's even powerful, like right there in the moment as you're going through it, like how do I make this um, a big deal? And so I, I've never had these words in the past, but now for post Goggins episode, I have the notion of the cookie jar, right? And so yeah. getting through that, like I would be saying this to myself as it's happening. So let's say like I was in a car accident and I shatter my leg. Literally the amount of agony that you'd be in in that moment is, is blinding. But if I needed to turn to something, I would turn to this really fucking sucks. But getting through this is a cookie in the cookie jar. Like getting through this, manning up, like just staying focused, get through it, find a way, whatever it takes, um, it's going to be a cookie in the cookie jar. So you know that being the person that you want to be in that moment of heightened stress, of pain, of anguish, and it can be emotional anguish, doesn't have to be physical, but in that moment, if you stop and really hold yourself accountable to the identity that you've created with the awareness that when you get on the other side of it, you get to be proud of how you acted. And that's a big deal. And like knowing that like working now in a moment where nothing is going wrong, working in a moment where nothing is going wrong to build that framework to know that, okay, the only thing I know for sure is that hard times are coming for me. And when those hard times come, it's actually an awesome test. And I think we all need to be tested. I actually think we need the suffering to grow as an individual. So when that happens, when you're being tested, to know that your goal during that test is to show up and be the person that you want to be. And if you can do that, then you get that credibility with yourself. That's awesome. I think that actually ties into my next question around something Jim said. Um, he said that the, everyone has an image of the ideal self that we want yeah. to be, right? And then there is... Um, an image that we are afraid of what we actually are. And then there's who we actually are. And he said that there's a lot of stress and fatigue that comes from people trying to juggle all of these images at once. Mm. And really what it is is just, you just need to be yourself and own that and be okay with that. But how, how common do you think this problem is for people juggling sort of these different ideal selves and struggling uh, with the gaps there? I think it's, I mean, and for people that are, willing to dare to dream to become something else, I think it's the permanent state of human nature. Okay. Um, I think everybody projects more than who they are. Um, and I think that's a really useful strategy when you believe you can actually become that person and you're trying to walk the part as a, like that smile, faking the smile so that you can actually make it a part of right. who you are. Um, I think that's great. 
And I think that that can actually help people like moving like you're confident will actually actually help you grow confident over time. And so I don't think that that's like at, at a certain level, and there's people that take it to a pathological and they're actually lying and all that. And I, I certainly don't support that. But there is, um, there is a, an amount of like the belief has to come first. You have to act confidently before you're going to feel confidently. Like all those things that you, that you really have to do. Um, I think those are all important, but I think when you, when the idealized version of yourself is, um, more humble, more willing to admit when they're wrong, uh, more willing to learn, more prepared to sit at somebody else's feet, uh, more prepared to be a follower and not need to lead at all times. Like when that's the idealized version of yourself, like the more that, um, you really, I think you're actually getting closer to who you are because I think the lacking humility and those things, that's bravado that you're trying to put there because you think it makes you better than you really are. Mm. And so it becomes a stripping away process rather than an additive process. Um, And so I really do think there's like you can lower your anxiety levels. Like I remember when I first started doing this, people used to say all the time, like, why are you humble or, or how do you stay humble or wow, it's so weird that you aren't trying to act cool. And my whole thing is trying to act cool made me anxious. Mm. Like I felt like I was going to be discovered. Like people are going to find out that I'm not that bright, that I'm, um, I'm, I don't have all the answers that, you know, I'm muffling my way through this just like anybody else. So I thought to lower my anxiety, I, I don't want to pretend. I don't want to pretend I'm something I'm not. I don't want to pretend I have an answer that I don't, which is why you can hear me say routinely, like, we are now at the edge of my understanding. Right. Like, I, I, it's important to me to say all that stuff um, for two reasons. One, because it makes me feel less anxious. And two, because people will see me grow over time. And that leading by example is very important to my identity. So I want people that have been following me now, you know, there's some people that have been following me for like two years. And so in those two years, they've already seen me changing it better. And, and one of the comments that I'm most proud of getting socially is, whoa, like you've really gotten better as an interviewer, mm-hmm. as a um, influencer, whatever the case may be, like that's meaningful that people can really see that. And if for no other reason than I want them to know that that's possible in their lives. And that when I say pulling people out of the matrix, that's what I'm talking about, that that they will believe of themselves that they are capable of so much more than they think they are right now. So if they see me do it and I'm not making any pretenses that cool or whatever, um, I think that that teaches that lesson. So, you know, to, to Jim's point, it's like it's less anxiety producing. Um, it'll help you really find out who you are in and there are going to be times where you do something that you wish you hadn't. And once you view yourself in a long enough timeline, you know, you can polish that off. It's not a permanent part of your personality, all that, then, then it really adds up to self-improvement. When it comes to platforms that will help you run a business, there is no shortage of options on the market. But if you want to use the best, most advanced, and most efficient platform out there, you need to be using Shopify. For whatever and wherever you want to sell, from launching to going international, Shopify is the global commerce platform that will help you grow at every stage of your business. With award-winning customer service, the internet's highest converting checkout page, and a suite of integrated AI tools, Shopify is your all-in-one platform to quickly and efficiently take your business to the next level. 
I love everything about Shopify because it makes it so easy to start, run, and grow a business. Shopify powers more than 10% of all U.S. e-commerce because businesses that want to grow quickly use Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com slash impact right now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash impact. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you wanna have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with eBay Motors. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Nice. Um, Another thing Jim said is that you should keep your self-talk positive because your mind is always eavesdropping Mm -hmm. on your self-talk, which I thought was a really interesting point. Um, And there seems to be this sense from from his perspective, at least, that, you know, you're unconsciously always registering your self-talk. And I know that you believe in not silencing the inner critic, right? In some negative self-talk, right? Um, But what if you're not conscious of that? inner critic? What if it's just registering unconsciously, but you're not fully aware of it? Can that be corrosive? Oh, it it is indefinitely. I mean, it's definitely, excuse me, corrosive, like Mm -hmm. no question about it. Um, Becoming more self-aware, like there's so many influencers out there and they've 
created a, a lane for me, which is nobody's talking about how to become more self-aware. And it is a very hard question to answer. Yeah. So I've really stopped to think about, okay, how did I become self-aware? Like what were the things that I did? How can people practice self-awareness? Because I believe everything can be practiced. So when I really stop and look at um, this, reading the book Homo Deus gave me the, a new lexicon to talk about it. Mm. So I think this is very powerful. And I actually totally agree with Jim that your subconscious is always eavesdropping. Um, but I also think your subconscious is talking to you a lot. Mm. And you need to learn to eavesdrop on your subconscious. So the negative voice mm. is a conscious thing. You also need to eavesdrop on your subconscious so you know like what's running there. And there's this weird self-reinforcing loop. Your subconscious is listening to your conscious mind. And so that may become a subconscious process, right? So you can make that subconscious process migrate positive or you can make it migrate negative. Um, but I don't think they're... One, I don't think there's a way to get rid of the negative voice. That's the way the human mind is wired. I just think it's also useful, but you can't listen to it too much. So anyway, here's the language that Homo Deus gave me to really understand what's going on. So you can, you can synthesize and process a lot more data subconsciously than you can consciously, okay? That's probably why the conscious mind and the subconscious mind exist. One is a, a just deeply efficient process the subconscious, and one is a deeply inefficient process, the conscious mind. Yeah. So when you think about the conscious mind, and there's definitely tiers to the conscious mind, like um, I find that when I think of a concept, I can think of the concept and I know what it is, and then I can actually um, sub-vocally vocalize it, right? So you actually hear a voice articulating syllables and words in your mind, right? So we're all familiar with that concept. And in between those is already a change in efficiency. But below that, in the subconscious mind, you have a, a just a much more efficient program. So like right now, I'm talking to you, but for whatever weird reason, I guess because I'm thinking about the subconscious, for a split second, I became aware of the blue wall behind you. But I'm gonna, again, get lost in the conversation and, and I'll forget that it's there. But not only do I see that, I see Jim out of the corner of my eye, I see the daylight, out the window and I'm aware of what's there and all that. But like, we'll sort of come in and out of these moments where I'm totally locked in on you and what I'm saying and I absolutely am 100% unaware of these, even though my subconscious is paying attention to all of them. Yeah. And if it were to detect uh, movement or danger, whatever, it would once again grab my attention. So the subconscious has to be there scanning everything that's in your umwelt, okay? Mm -hmm. So your umwelt is all the things that we can perceive, sight, sound, touch, you know, all that. Speaking of, we have an alarm going off here, which now my subconscious mind process brought it to the forefront of my conscious mind. Um, so that's really like your subconscious has to process all the data points. So my subconscious is processing like your, um, that little micro expression that just went across your eyebrows, like, you know, your face, like your posture, everything. And it's assimilating it and it's keeping me abreast. Now, the way that it's keeping me abreast, and this is the big thing I got from Homo Deus, is the subconscious, the language that it speaks in, the way that it gives you data in a deadly efficient way is emotion. Okay, let that one sink in. Mm. So the things that you feel are from your subconscious processing a lot of data. Wow. And rather than trying to give you words, thoughts, like clear thoughts, it just gives you emotion, a feeling. And that's why the first thing you're gonna get when you encounter somebody, you get a gut reaction, like right away. Because you're reading like, it's what I call, um, the pub brawler effect. So there's just a certain type of person. Um, there was a guy in the MMA, I think his name was Jeffrey Monson, and he just looked violent. Like if you saw him on the street, 
wouldn't matter. Like you wouldn't have to like ask if he's a fighter. He just looks like a fighter. He's got like that square head, the big jaw, the thick neck, like just looks solid, right? Yeah. Versus somebody that looks like a little nerdy, right? You're not, like if I put them next to each other, even if the nerdy guy is the MMA fighter, like, and I said, one of these two people is a fighter, which one is it? Like the overwhelming majority of people are gonna put sure. it on the guy that looks like a pub brawler, right? right. Just the type of guy that would get in a fight in a yep. pub. Yep. So that's your subconscious, right? It gives you this gut feeling about that person, so it plays out as an emotion. So all the emotions that you're having, that's your subconscious speaking to you in a very efficient language. In the book, he gives an example of a baboon trying to judge the distance. So if there's like a bushel of bananas and it wants to go grab the bananas, but there's a tiger on the other side. So all the things in the umvelt that it's gonna be taking in, the distance, um, how spry am I feeling right now? Am I high energy? How hungry am I? Is it worth taking a risk how hungry does the tiger look what's the tiger's like body language you know running the the geometry and the math like even taking in like if the tiger were standing um, let's say knee deep in water like how much that might slow them down but all that's processed in the blink of an eye and you just get a feeling either go for it or uh, i'm not mm -hmm. so sure right mm -hmm. that feeling is the subconscious processing that just vast amount of data so it, it really does work both ways. I think that because you really, really need to train, like the part of your brain that can process so much data so rapidly, you need to train it. So you need, and that's why I believe you should spend at least 80% of your time thinking on the positive, the beautiful, and all that, because now you're gonna train your subconscious to be looking for opportunity, to be viewing the world in an optimistic way, to instead of see the potential danger and downside and always getting this doom and gloom feeling, like, I mean, just to be really cheesy for a second, like to uh, make real the notion of, is it the glass half empty or half full? Like when you see it, train your subconscious to give you a positive feeling rather than a negative feeling, which is, you know, I believe that people can train themselves to be more optimistic or train themselves to be more negative. Certainly life is doing its best to teach you all that. And I, I don't believe in that we're born blank slates, but I believe that we're born very malleable. Mm -hmm. And I think that we maintain that malleability. That's super interesting. I've never heard it described that way that your subconscious is processing and the emotion is the output. Mm. That's really, really fascinating. Um, what about, uh, do you think writing is a tool for self-awareness? Wow, that's interesting. I've never thought of it like that before, but most definitely, especially if you're just doing stream of consciousness. Mm -hmm. One thing that's really interesting, so I'm a verbal processor, and I remember the first time I heard somebody say, and I always forget who wrote this, um, but I don't speak to be understood, I speak so I can understand. And that is very true for me. And that's one of the reasons I love doing this show is I gain more and more clarity about myself by having to answer these questions. And it really forces me to think about, God, what do I think about that? What do I believe about that? And that's where your subconscious is like gonna cough up the answer. And so it's already residing in your subconscious, but by having to put words around it, you bring that into your conscious mind. Yeah. So I find that very, very interesting. I find the same thing is happening when you're writing. And writing is just slow enough that the process gives you a chance to cough up that, um, that concept into your conscious mind in the time that it takes you, you know, to finish writing right. that first word, you're like on to the next and the next and the next. And so if you're not trying to write to like publish, cause I find that 
then I like clamp down on things I already understand and I really try to write that in the best way possible, the punchiest way. Um, whereas if I'm doing free flow, then I'll surprise myself mm -hmm. and be like, whoa, I never thought of that. And that's one thing that I like about writing fiction or writing a screenplay is the characters really do seem to be in control. Like mm -hmm. it's so weird. And I remember I was writing the screenplay one time and I had this female character and I had to name her. And all of a sudden I was like, her name's Mike. And then it was like, why is her name? Like literally, I had no concept of why that would jump into my conscious mind. Wrote her name down as Mike. And then like my subconscious is like coughing up all this stuff. She had this dad that wanted a boy. And so he named her Mike because he was just like, couldn't let go of it and like all this stuff. And she was like, you know, it's not my nickname. Like that's really my name. And so then she started to feel real and it started to be like, I didn't know where it was coming from, right? Yeah. Like it was just, and so obviously at some point, like these ideas have been forming in my subconscious and going through the fiction writing process, especially because the best way I find to write the first draft, don't like get hung up on the words and stuff, like just get the ideas out. And so there really is a sense that they've sort of within the confines of the story that you're trying to tell, but they've taken over and are letting you know who they are, mm -hmm. um, which makes the process truly magical and it's one of the reasons that i so love which is ironic for a guy who doesn't read any fiction anymore um that i so love the process of writing fiction because it you're on this like exploration it's yeah really i've heard a lot of writers talk about like you have to listen to your characters mm. because they're telling you kind of how the story's going to unfold and then also writers when they finish a book say that like they miss the characters right like for like friends, sure you know um, yeah, it's super interesting. All right. Um, let's bring it back to the episode here. So Jim also talks about that our value in this world is creativity and it stopped me because this is becoming a pattern. Like how many of our guests have said that creativity is one of the most valuable things you mm -hmm. can possess and one of the most important things to work on. I mean, Chase Jarvis talked about it. Um, Andy Walsh talked about mm. it. Jim is talking about it, especially in the future world of AI and machines. Yeah. So I wanted to, I just wanted to get your response on that. Well, creativity, especially in a world where things that are easy to automate are going to be automated, um, that things that require the ability to truly multitask, which humans can't do, is going to be automated, mm -hmm. um, that a lot of jobs are going to be going away and creativity doesn't necessarily mean drawing. So that's right. like important for people to understand. We're not talking about sculpting, painting, drawing, that's singing. That's just the expression of the creativity. Right. That's one type of creativity. Yeah. Um, but like there are mathematicians that are wildly creative. Einstein used to talk about like physics is a game of creativity. Um, you know, imagination is more important than knowledge and, and like, that's where you get into, at least right now, what the human mind is uniquely gifted at, um, the ability to connect, to empathize, um, to creatively solve problems, to imagine a world that doesn't yet exist. We're the only animal that can do that, um, which is really, really interesting. And I think it would be very hard for AI to do that. Um, so that's where just from like a future proofing yourself, like creativity is very interesting, but also feeling alive is when you feel like you're making a unique contribution that you like without you, things would be fundamentally different 
and worse, right? That's when it gets really exciting. Yeah. And the only way to get there is when you're having a unique idea, which I find the only way to have unique ideas is to take a lot of ideas into this unique internal world that is you, that will never again be, that never before was, because you're the unique circumstances of not only your genetics, um, the epigenetic uh, factors in your microbiome, which is my new obsession, um, and the family that you were raised in, the things that have happened to you, but also your time period. So literally, even if all the other variables somehow magically were identical, your time period is going to shape you, and that's obviously never going to come again. Mm -hmm. So um, that, to me, is is really how once you start focusing on creativity, which I'll say is the ability to have mastered something so well that you can confidently make a counterintuitive move because almost certainly it comes from a gut instinct. Like you've trained yourself so well and by gut instinct, I mean you've taken it out of the conscious mind. It's now so deeply rooted in your subconscious, which using Jim's vernacular has been eavesdropping on you that whole time during your learning process. It's now got this vast amount of data that it's drawing from that you've pulled in in your game of becoming a master in that. And then like somebody playing musical notes, it throws up these interesting ideas based on who you are and your unique wiring of your brain. And it brings up in this very new and unique pattern, like the different solutions. So, so there's no creativity without mastery. I don't not, not, uh, I'm going to ask you to uh, draw a line there. Yeah. There's not. There really isn't. Really? I mean, maybe clumsy creativity in the way that a kid might surprise you with something that's like, oh, that's interesting. But I think that's more you sort of painting on top of it. Like your interpretation is creative more than necessarily what they created was creative. Um, so, yeah, like I, I've never like answered that question for myself, but I don't think there is. Have you ever heard of the studies where they give like a second grader or first grader a paperclip? and ask them, they give them a certain amount of time and how many different things can you do with this? And they can come up with like 150 or something like that. Right. And you give it to an adult and they can come up with six in the same amount of time. Yeah. What do you make of that? Um, that's a really interesting question that is really challenging my notions <laughs> of like, what is the definition of creativity? Yeah. And I think that's really where, um, because in all fairness, like bending a paperclip is not very interesting. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they can bend it into 150 different shapes, like, so what? Um, but give them uh, the parts to make the Large Hadron Collider, and will they? No. So, sure. but somebody who can, you know, I mean, take Einstein. So somebody who really caused these fundamental shifts in um, physics did it from the point of he had a willingness to be wrong, he had uh, an insatiable curiosity, but it was like his thought experiments, like say you're traveling on a beam of light and there's a train going near the speed of light and you turn on a flashlight on the train, like what happens to those two beams of light? Does one pull away from the other? Do they go the same speed? Um, if you don't understand physics, you can't even ask that question. Right. So to me, getting or take piano, like they say um, that if you, it's usually a typewriter, if you leave a monkey at a typewriter long enough randomly hitting keys in an infinitely random universe, like ultimately it will write war and peace. Mm -hmm. But like, are we going to call that creativity? Not really. I mean, that's just the law of big numbers. Um, so 
I think that creativity, like hiding in my mind as I articulate all of this is a usefulness. So whether that's a concerto that actually moves me in a certain way, um, whether that's uh, a painting that moves me in a certain way, um, you know, that's like, to me, like you would have to have mastered like, even take Jackson Pollock, who's, and I'm not saying there aren't flash in the pans where people convince themselves of something's creative. Like they've had the monkeys like splatter paint and, um, you know, people convince themselves that it's amazing or the same bottle of wine tasted by wine experts. And they think it's eight different wines and they rate them all differently, but the same fucking bottle of wine poured mm -hmm. from the same bottle and everything. So I'm not saying that people can't trick themselves, but in terms of like enduring value from something creative, Jackson Pollock, when you break it down, he basically painted in fractals. And so at, you can actually break break his paintings down mathematically. So as the average person, you look at it and for whatever reason, you just like it and you like it more. And he's been more enduring than other painters who did what on the surface seems similar. But then when you break theirs down, the mathematics don't hold up. So for whatever reason, like as he was creating these mass collages of just like what seemed like really random stuff, there's actually a balance and a mathematics to what he's doing that speaks to something inside the human being. So um, I think there's a reason that he's endured. I think there's a reason that Einstein had breakthroughs in physics that a seventh grader is never going to have. Um, and those things to me are mastery. I think that there's a reason, you know, the whole notion of take MMA, right? The most creative jujitsu practitioners are the ones that know the most. So is it possible that a guy rolls on the mat for the first time ever and he does something interesting? Maybe, but like, I really think the, the real breakthroughs are gonna come from you're, you so understand something that it removes, it's no longer residing in the neocortex, it's no longer in your conscious mind. It's, you know, Bruce Lee's concept of kick until you don't think kick, you just kick. It's so ingrained in you that it, it's all the like higher level cognitive processes that clamp down too tightly on something are removed because it drops down into the subconscious. And now like just the sheer amount of time that you've put into getting really great at that, like even take playing piano, like your fingers get in the way until you're great. Playing guitar, like I remember how long it took me to learn how to do a bar chord physically to get to the point where I could do it. So like those things stand in the way to me of creativity. So I, yes, I am now more certain than ever, despite your paperclip bending child, um, because I, I think that it does take mastery. Now you need to approach things like you can't let things get dogmatic. That's where people really get into trouble. Um, and you'll hear high level scientists talk about that a lot, that people end up holding themselves back because they're so convinced they know the truth. And so, you know, I'll, I'll lean on my boy Einstein again, that um, I really think that imagination really is more important than knowledge and that your knowledge can calcify into dogma and then hold you back. Um, but one final repetition and I will stop. Mastery is needed for creativity. All right, there we have it. So speaking of Einstein, uh, Jim says that if you're a genius, your not to do list is bigger than your to do list. So what are some things on your not to do list? Don't check email. I mean, that's like my most aggressive, um, don't check email. Um, I don't take naps during the day unless it's the weekend. Um, what are on my to-do list? I, more, so I rank things in order of importance. Mm -hmm. So any one day, like what's on my not to-do list is gonna be completely random. Mm -hmm. Like don't call that person back, don't reply to that person, don't do that podcast. Like there's a thousand, just cause I need to do this thing. Um, I don't respond to a lot of comments during the day 
because I love it so much. I so enjoy engaging with the community that I distrust it. Um, I found in business, like when you're doing the thing you really want to do, like a lot of times it's because it's easy versus mm. it being the right thing. So um, I usually do comments late at night. Like that's that's when I really go in on it. So my last one to two hours of the day, I spend like going hard on comments every day. Um, and that, don't get me wrong. You're going to see me like five minutes here, five minutes there um, doing comments just, just to um, continue to build that connection with the community. But yeah, I distrust things if I like it too much. And look, I get how nuanced that is because I'm normally like, hey, find that thing that makes you feel alive and do that. But it's like when you're building a business, it, it sadly is not about like each task making you feel alive. If it was, we never would have gotten an EIN number from the IRS. That was one of the most painful things that I had to do in starting that. this fucking company. Um, you know, or like our taxes or dealing with the account. Like I hate that stuff so completely, but I just recognize that it all needs to be done. So yeah, there it is. There it is. Uh, Jim said something really interesting uh, about how we outsource our brains to our smart devices today which yeah. I had never really thought of, but he said people are forgetting how to memorize things because why would you? You have a computer in your pocket and you can just look mm -hmm. it up. Um, and he sees this as a, you know, possibly a dangerous thing. How do we rely on technology and machines without becoming wholly dependent? Um, I think it's a false question. So I think we are going to become cyborgs. Um, at some point, I think we'll straight transcend biology. So... I think we're in an intermediary period because where I want to be is where I'm, um, and maybe it's not even wearing glasses, but we'll just make it easy. I'm wearing glasses and I have like a little earpiece in my ear and my own AI is talking to me. And it's like, that's Jared. You call him Agent Smith. Um, he got his haircut three days ago. You know what I mean? Like, or it just goes like he got his haircut. His hair has been changed by 62%. You know what I mean? And so it's like, oh, dude, your hair looks nice. Like, that's where you're going. So that's the intermediary step. Now, before we get there, then you can make a huge impact on somebody. And to me, it comes down to like, how does it help you connect with other people? So, um, you know, Jim is talking, I can't remember if, we, if it came up in this episode or not, but I've talked to him about it so many times. I associate it with him. Bill Clinton, being able to remember people's names and like remembering things about them. And Christopher talked about how Will Smith could do that and that how good it made Christopher feel that he meets Will Smith and then three years later meets him again. And Will's like, Christopher, what's up, man? And he was just like freaking out that he remembered him. So right now it's such an incredibly powerful way to connect with somebody that I fully get what Jim is saying now. But if I like think out 10 years, the thing that I just described is real. So, and it's for sure within 10 years, face, facial recognition, even translation. Like one thing I'm deeply sad about 10 years from now, it will be meaningless to people that I learned Greek, right? And that was brutally difficult and I put a lot of work into it and I did it to impress my wife and to be able to like prove something to myself and all that. But in 10 years, like literally I'll have that device in my ear and you'll speak in real time in a foreign language and I'll hear it like with no latency. So it's, it's inevitable that that's where we're going. So it's like to put a lot of time and energy into it for the interim is, I don't know, it's probably not a great use of time. Don't you think you need to kind of store a bunch of these things in your memory bank, for instance, to uh, successfully execute an interview of Impact Theory? <laughs> the, yeah, so let's differentiate between memorizing things and educating yourself. 
educating yourself is always going to be useful. Otherwise, you're like Mr. Potato Head waiting for like feedback from your AI device and you cease to be uh, in existence, essentially. You just become a mouthpiece for your AI. Um, so yeah, educating yourself, getting great at something, that will forever be profoundly interesting. Um, so yeah, like that, 100%. Learn, learn, learn. Get really good at very specific executable tasks that have value. Mm -hmm. um, there's you know, no getting away from that. And that's why I'm so obsessed uh, with reading because I'm trying to get as much information um, into my, not only my um, conscious mind, but my subconscious mind. So yeah, that's really critical. And going back to mastery making more creative, um, like... I can do a show where people can ask me anything about anything and I feel very confident doing that because I know that unless somebody goes really specific on like something like hardcore science, I'll be able to answer just a wide array of questions in a useful manner. I'm always willing to admit when it's like, okay, I'm not the right person to ask that question to, but because I'm constantly like digesting like a wide variety of information. And I think that that will always be powerful. Um, even like, and I mean, so I'm, I like to answer the hard questions. So I'm pushing myself like um, Watson beat the guys at Jeopardy. And mm -hmm. so is there a time where as you're asking me a question, like Watson enabled device in my ear is giving me the answer? Um, I guess, but that, I think that's very different than having so much information, and this is absolutely the difference, I would continue to want to do that even if that Watson AI device existed because I want to have so much information that I'm making unique connections mm -hmm. based on what I've assimilated mm -hmm. and that only comes from gaining mastery in disparate disciplines. All right, nice. Uh, I think we have time for maybe one more question. Okay. So Jim says he's very mindful of his commitments and that most people that. are overcommitted. They say yes way too much. Mm -hmm. So if someone is trying to achieve greatness, you know, maybe they're starting a business, maybe they want to be a linchpin, a great parent, whatever it is, um, how do they balance overcommitment with aggressively pursuing new opportunities? Um, so I'll answer for myself. So I would rather be overcommitted than not efficiently using my time. And every now and then it gets a little frustrating because there's multiple things that I want to do and I committed to something weaker than something that comes up and to keep my commitments, like I have to do the weaker thing. And, um, but I think that's really important like to, but you know, you, you change it over time. So, um, it used to be, I would do anyone's podcast. If you asked and you had a follower, like I was still going to do your podcast. I needed the practice. Right. Um, I wanted to pay it forward. Word. Like, I remember how hard it was to get a good guest for us in the beginning. So it was like all those things come together and I want to do that. And then um, now it's had to change to where I will do it if I can. So now it becomes a scheduling concern. And then I just prioritize based on who, who will allow me to have the biggest impact. So if you hit me up in a moment where I don't have a lot going on, yeah, for sure. No question. Um, but if you hit me up in a moment where I've got a bunch of people and some of them have you know, uh, 500,000, a million followers, whatever, and you're, you know, at 150, then I just, logically, I have to prioritize those. Sure. So, um, yeah, that's where it is. All right. I think we'll wrap it up there. All right. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us for After Impact. I am so grateful to all the guests that come on. It's absolutely amazing. And I love going deeper and being able to touch on the things that we're not able to um, always carve out in the episode. And quite frankly, I love that Agent Smith takes the time to give a new take 
um, on each of these guests and things that hit you that uh, maybe I haven't had a chance to think about or just even pressing me with the uh, paper clips and other amazing questions uh, that you had that was a lot of fun. So uh, if you guys have questions, please submit them. It's always fun to answer your questions during our live Q&As as well. And normally these are live, so we get your questions on these shows. Uh, so please, you can submit them at connect at impacttheory.com or any one of my social channels. Uh, we aggregate those and bring them into the episode. So if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. This is a weekly show. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And if this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, rate and review us. That helps us build this community. And that is what we are all about right now, building this community as big as we can to help as many people as we can deliver as much value as possible. And you guys rating and reviewing really helps with that. All right, guys. Thank you again so much. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.